Welcome to Inland Around War, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights on contemporary issues related to wars. In the last episode of the second season of this podcast series, we discuss cyberspace and war with a very special guest. Join us for an insightful discussion with Antonio Coco, who is a lecturer in international law at Essex University and an alumnus of the Geneva Academy. In this episode, Antonio changes his role from co-host to guest to share his extensive knowledge of cyber operations and international law. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of our podcast series In and Around War. This is also the last episode of the second season, and we are very sorry for that. My name is Paola Gaeta. I'm professor of international law at the Geneva Graduate Institute, and here today with my co-host, Anna Srovin-Koralli. So great to be here again. My name is Anna Srovin-Koralli, and I'm a PhD candidate at the Geneva Graduate Institute and also a teaching assistant at the Geneva Academy. And I'm very excited today because we are having a special, very special, in fact, guest for this episode. Indeed, our special guest today is a person who is usually a co-host of this podcast season, is Antonio Coco, who is a lecturer of international law at Essex University. And uh, we thought for the last episode of our podcast, uh, second season, uh, whom we should invite. And then uh, the choice was pretty clear to me. We usually invite alumni of the LLM and master programs of the Geneva Academy, and we had a special one in the team. So that's why it was you. But you resisted, Antonio, no? Why did you resist it? I did. I thought it was a bit cheeky to <laughs> to invite me. That I'm, I'm usually a co-host and a, a bit self-referential, but then you insisted, and so I accepted. And I think I'm also a bit more nervous than usually uh, when I'm a co-host. Yes, indeed, I understand, Antonio. But the reason why we wanted to have you here is that not only because you are an alumnus of the Geneva Academy, but in particular because you are carrying out a very interesting research in the last uh, years, and you deal with the cyberspace, no? And uh, in this capacity, you have been one of the uh, promoters and founders of the Oxford Process on International Law Protections in Cyberspace, and you have been awarded a prize at Essex University for your research on cyberspace. So we thought with Anna that this would be a wonderful opportunity to ask you a few questions about cyberspace and war, because the podcast is a after all, about wars. Exactly. And Antonio, I actually want to start this uh, chat between us with a very basic question, which, you know, we often hear this word, this term that we will be also using today, cyberspace. But what does it actually mean? It's a good question. So thank you so much for inviting me and inviting me to talk about themes that I greatly enjoy. So cyberspace, let's start with something simple. It's not an actual space. It's uh, a series of zeros and ones that we use as a tool to perform several functions. Cyberspace is a mix of code, of physical machines. It's a mix of content and users that interact on it. 
There is definitely no single definition. Several entities, several states put forward different definitions as a fictive space, no mental space where people exchange or modify information. So it's, it's not somewhere where you can physically go, but it's something that you can use to store, exchange, or um, modify information. That's very clear, Antonio. So it's tricky because we use the term space, but indeed there is no space, as you said, although it's a, it's, it's a place where you can store, as you say, but it's also made of physical things, you know, which is where you store the machines, where you store all the relevant information or so things like that. But exactly what I would like to hear about that is what are you working on? Why an international lawyer is dealing with cyberspace. Uh, what is your research uh, dealing with? Well, as an international lawyer, of course, I'm concerned with the practice of states and the way the states interact with each other and with other entities, including human beings. And as technology has advanced, states have started operating in cyberspace. Or in other words, they have started storing, exchanging, modifying information through these tool, and they use cyberspace and information and communication technologies more in general for running basic governmental functions. States use information and communication technologies in cyberspace for their treasury functions, for their prison systems, for running elections, for uh, managing the healthcare system, the education system, and so on and so forth. And, And also they communicate through these means. So international law, as we know, concerns every single aspect of human life as it relates to uh, the behavior of those other fictive entities that are states. And since states start acting using these new tools, we need to understand what rules apply to their conduct in that respect, what duties do they have, and what rights do they have. Because, of course, there are malicious actors that uh, want to harm states and consequently the individuals that are governed by that state. Antonio, as you know, in this podcast, well, we focus usually on the topic of war. So you seem to also suggest that there are some relevant rules. What I do wonder is what are the relevant rules or what is the connection, if you like, between the, the rules relevant to warfare and cyberspace? Absolutely. Well, I should say that this is a very contentious topic, being that the question of whether international humanitarian law, the, the laws of armed conflict, whether they do apply to operations that take place in cyberspace, that they can call cyber operations, and in common language that often called cyber attacks, right? We hear in the news of cyber attacks. Uh, in, the, in the field of international law, as it applies to these technologies, we tend to avoid using cyber attacks because the word attack in international law has a specific meaning. And so more generally, we talk of cyber operations or operations taking place through information and communication technologies. These operations do take place also in armed conflict. Which kind of cyber operations may be relevant in the current Ukraine and Russian war, for instance? Well, for example, if there is a, a dam that's operated by some cyber tools, for sure there is a computer deciding whether the, the floodgates uh, are open or closed. If a malicious actor can hack into that system and determine that the, the gates open, for example, 
that could be an operation of that kind. Of course, I'm inspired by real-time events, but in a different modality, of course. Or another possibility could be that there is software used by a belligerent to manage the supplies to the to the front, supplies of uh, weapons, ammunitions, food, and whatever. There is some software that is used to determine what supplies go to which parts of the of the armed forces on which parts of the front and then this uh, information is either accessed to know and the enemy tries to know what what is the information or tries to make the software unavailable to disrupt the supply of the enemy or another example could be in the case of a purely malicious operation trying to hack into the information and communication systems of a hospital of the enemy forces to prevent the hospital from working properly because everything is digitalized nowadays. We have uh, medical records, they are digitalized, the treatment options are digitalized. So when you hit the information infrastructure, you are basically hindering the provision of a certain service. And, And so... This can happen, or a typical example is getting uh, the enemy off the power grid, hitting the power grid and stopping the supply of electricity, something that can be done by cyber means. So if, if I understand you correctly, you prefer to speak of cyber operations rather than cyber attacks in all these circumstances, because usually in the language of the laws of warfare or international humanitarian law, an attack always implies the use of, of violence, violent means, you know, while in this case, uh, the, the equivalent to result, you know, such as destroying the capability of a power grid, will be, will be obtained not through the, military, the use of military violence, but through a cyber operation. No? Yes, yes, exactly. And it, it's not to mean that a cyber operation cannot amount to an attack in the sense of international humanitarian law. It could be, but... In order to make that determination, we need to verify what happened in, in, in reality, in the facts of the case. And the rule of thumb is, if the effects are similar to that of a kinetic attack, then we can consider that that is an attack as well, because it's simply carried out with other tools, but reaching the same effects. Even though there is no military violence in the sense of kinetic or physical violence involved. Yes, and and I want to stress that this is an argument that is put forward by some scholars or by some states, because the very application of the rules of international humanitarian law to cyber means is contested by a great part of the world. Yes, such as the example of the dam that you gave, which is now currently in the headlines. I mean, uh, the result would be equivalent to a military attack against the dam, no? But it's conducted through, let's say, a cyber operation. Yes. So someone would argue that this would be a military attack against the dam. Some some could argue that, yeah. Uh, But what are the states, if I may ask, who would uh, push towards this interpretation? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you what the discussions have been in the UN settings and the states that are most averse to mentioning international humanitarian law in these discussions are Russia and allies. Russia and allies have been very, very reluctant to, to, to admit or to, to accept that rules of international humanitarian law also apply to cyber operations. Whilst there have been many, many states uh, from Europe or from the Western world in general being very vocal about making saying that these rules of international humanitarian law apply 
to cyber operations as well. Switzerland, as you can imagine, is one of the most vocal states for obvious reasons. The International Committee of the Red Cross as a stakeholder, non-state stakeholder, also has been very vocal in saying that the rules of international humanitarian law apply to these kind of operations. And I, I would say states for the Euro- from the European Union, Canada, Australia. What about China? What's the position of China? Is it an ally of Russia or is Russia an ally of China? I don't know. It's uh, somewhere in between, I would say. The leader of that front, of the no, no international humanitarian law front, is, is Russia. And then there are allies of Russia. China tends to think with its own head in this, in this field. And I should disclose that I have been part of discussions between experts from the European Union and experts from China on how international law applies in cyberspace as well. But what about the position, Antonio, of other like private, smaller actors on this? So not only states, no? Now you said the states, but what is the general tendency, if you like, between uh, private institutions on this? Well, there is great variation, of course. I would say that everyone does their own interests. Civil society has been quite vocal in extending the protections of existing law to cyberspace and cyber means. So if we think the International Committee of the Red Cross or the big uh, non-governmental organizations that are part of civil society, they they are in favor of saying the, the rules that we have, let's start from those and let's say that at least those apply. And then in the future, perhaps we think about we, whether we need even more protective rules. But there has been resistance to that idea. There is now, after many years of discussions, there is now an understanding that The baseline is that unless there are exceptions, international law applies to these kind of operations. But with the specific focus on international humanitarian law, that's where agreement has not been universal. And there is still quite a big split. But the disagreement on the possible applications of of the rules of international humanitarian law would depend on which ground or non-application. Because, I mean, of course, international humanitarian law does not say that shall apply in a particular physical space. I mean, these are rules that have to you know, guide the conduct of belligerents or states in general, independent of, you know, independently of where the activities take place. Now, is it the question of because of certain activities they require necessarily, such as in the case of military force, you know, uh, that the military force is actually used? Or, I mean, if I attack an hospital by hacking the information, let's say, or the power grid of the hospital, is it, uh, is it something that is because it's not a military attack and therefore I cannot apply the rule prohibiting uh, attacking military in an hospital. What's the point? Okay, so I should say, first of all, that when states uh, put forward official uh, positions on this, they do not get to the granularity of that type of operation. They just speak in very general terms. And the main objection to applying international humanitarian law to these kind of operations is uh, that the states that do not want the rules of IHL to be applicable, say that this would increase militarization of cyberspace. That once we say that the rules of international humanitarian law apply, they feel that all states in the world would feel authorized to use cyberspace in a military way, in a military manner. And that they would say that since there are rules saying what you cannot do, everything else is is permitted, and then you can go ahead and do it. 
Personally, I believe this argument to be quite hypocritical because, in fact, military uses of cyberspace are already a reality. And on the contrary, saying that the existing principles of distinction, proportionality, precautions, and humanity apply, it means saying that there are certain types of operations that are off limits at the very least. And, and guiding the, the, the practice and guiding the discourse around the practice. Very often we think about law only in terms of violations, right? We, we, we tend to, to think we want to apply a rule because we want to punish the entity or the subject that has violated the rule. But that's not the way, the only way that law works. Law also works as a guidance. And if we say that certain rules are applicable, that will guide the behavior of subjects. So I, I think these, these are the, the main reasons. There is also a legal argument that is put some, sometimes forward about why, why not international humanitarian law should apply. And the legal argument is that international humanitarian law has developed for very specific so-called domains, being that land, the sea, and the air. And therefore, this would be a fourth new domain of cyber, and we would need new rules because we have rules for land, air, and sea. Personally, I disagree with this argument. I think the rules have developed as broad principles and then they are declined for the different specific situations and therefore uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't really take this domain language too seriously. So Antonio, you actually, that's, you stole me the question that I wanted to pose you because I wanted to ask you, what is your stance on this? Do we need a new set of rules? But I'm also interested in addition to that, what about, you know, the discussions, or this is also part of the discussions that you've been working on. What about the rules really on use at Bellum? So how in this context, cyber attacks are understood do you usually or do most states understand that uh, basically a cyber attack can amount to an arm attack as it's really understood under the United Nations Charter? And then specifically, can it also trigger the right to self-defense under the Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, which is the article on the inherent right of states to self-defense? So there is an easy answer is that on this point, states agree that you cannot use cyber means to basically use force against another state. And that the prohibition to use armed force applies also to the use of cyber means. And they also tend to agree that if the cyber operation amounts to a so-called armed attack in the sense of Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, there would be a right to self-defense. Now, this is the agreement at the level of the rules, because you understand these are very basic rules of international law that are the foundation of modern international law. And even for the states that are more, most reluctant, it's politically very hard to say that these rules do not apply. Harder than the rules of international humanitarian law. However, having said that, agreement at the abstract level of the principles doesn't mean that there is agreement on how to implement them. And there are still lots of discussions and lots of disagreement and lack of clarity on when is it that a cyber operation amounts to a use of force such that it would violate the United Nations Charter? Or when is it that a cyber operation would amount to the threshold of an armed attack such that it would give rise to a right to self-defense? So these practical questions are still 
more open. And in a sense, we haven't had practice yet of a cyber operation that has triggered a violation of the United Nations Charter. So, but Antonio, what would be your, your typical example that you would give to your students if you should think of an example where a cyber operation could amount to, to an armed attack, triggering the right to, to self-defense from another state? So the test, the legal test that I would employ is a test of scale and effects. So if the scale and effects of the cyber operation are similar to that of a kinetic attack, then it could be a use of armed force or an armed attack, depending on what are you comparing it with. And an example that I could give, perhaps, is relatively famous. In 2010, there was a a malicious code that was inserted into a nuclear enrichment facility in Iran. The malicious code is known as Stuxnet. It's not quite clear who engineered this code. You can Google, I will not make names. But the effect of this code was to cause the turbines of the facility to overspin at a speed higher than normal, so high that it would cause the the turbines to break down. Now, that is similar to the effects of bombing the facility, essentially. I mean, the scale was smaller, but let's imagine that the effects are such that the facility explodes. Yeah, I understand. That's a very good example because you, you, you touch a point that I wanted to ask before. It's, I mean, okay, but then how can I identify who has done it in order to say that this, this is an attack that is carried out by a group of people, now let's say another state, another government in the classical hypothesis where an armed attack is carried out by state against another state, but then we can open the question whether or not the groups operating non-state armed groups operating from within a state that can carry out an armed attack against another state. So, I mean, how can we identify who does the cyber operation? Yeah, this is the main problem of international law in cyberspace. It's the problem of attribution because cyber means give an anonymity that physical means do not offer. And cyber means also are available to a much wider range of subjects than kinetic means. I mean, it's difficult to come by a bazooka or a tank, but if you have the the technical knowledge, you can write malicious code pretty much from your home. Of course, I should say that the type of malicious code that is employed by state actors is so sophisticated and it requires so much technical capacity that it's evident very often. In other words, code, especially to get past cybersecurity defenses, needs to be so sophisticated that when it is of a certain high level, you will infer or think that that has been designed using the resources of a state. So it seems that maybe there's less difficulty with somehow finding the state behind the attack, but still probably the individual, no? That's still probably difficult to to determine an individual. It, it is always hard, even, even when you want to attribute it to a state, and it's very politically delicate to come forward if you've been the victim of such operation. Unless they tell you, you will not have 100% certainty. And however, some states, they do so-called public attribution. They go forward and they say, this attack that we received or this malicious operation of which we were the victim has been sponsored by state X or has been carried out directly by state X. 
And there have been such allegations. All the major actors have been alleging each other, uh, attributing each other. I think the, the, the Western countries, the, the so-called Five Eyes, which is a, an alliance of five uh, cyber powers, United States, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and United Kingdom. Not often, I would say, but sometimes they do make public attribution of incidents of which they've been the victims. And they have attributed some incidents, for example, to, to Russia, either directly, Russian state officials, or indirectly. So private groups operating from Russian infrastructure or with at the very least, tolerance or acquiescence by Russian authorities. And of course, this calls into play all the rules of international law and attribution, and, and that's uh, another matter. That's so fascinating, Antonio. I could continue for hours this conversation, but unfortunately, you know, our time is limited and then we have to close this podcast. But before doing so, I wanted to ask you the following. Uh, among the LLM um, alumni of the Geneva Academy, uh, you have been among those who have decided to pursue academic career. Do you have any tip to give to your colleagues who would like to pursue the same? What would you give as a major advice to them? Well, I should premise that I've been very, very lucky and luck plays a big role. And so I, I cannot give a perfect recipe because I, I have received the right and the appropriate opportunities at the right moment. And I have to thank you, Paola, for giving many of, of those opportunities. What I would advise is not to be too inflexible, to open up to possible new streams of research and to try to pursue opportunities, even if they are not in the field of knowledge or the field of research in which you are most comfortable. Because these will allow you to navigate what is otherwise a very competitive market in which hyper-specialization is not, in my opinion, something desirable. But flexibility, on the contrary, I would say is, is more important. Yeah, this is a great advice and I totally subscribe it. And But to be lucky is not the, the only, no? No, the component is of luck is always inherent of every, no? In every of the our accomplishment, but at the same time, not be too modest. One has also to be ready and to, at the beginning, no? Work hard. Absolutely. I should say also that hard work uh, is, is important and pays off. I mean, I think if I may add, I think it's, it's what you said, it's really hard work and hard work is often more than the talent. No, I think that's the message that at least I always try to pass to our student also that uh, it's many times being at the right place at the right time, as you said, but it's really then essentially the hard work behind that you invest into things. But you know, Antonio, now I want to give you the, the choice whether you wish to answer our usual question on the memory for the academy or you wish to maybe say or share with us in which sense you're most grateful to the academy ah i can i can do the second one so that we change it up a bit the way i'm most grateful is for the human connections the people that i met at the academy because sometimes we tend to think we tend to think about law as something very technical very dry Lawyers as these boring people that just read papers or write papers and that's it. And instead, the, the teachers and the students that I've met at the Geneva Academy have been completely different. People that are passionate, that take things to heart, that do things with heart and, and try to 
remind every every time that law is there to serve human beings. Law is not something to worship. Law is a tool to apply, to make society better, to make people live better. And this was very evident since the first day that I joined the Academy as an LLM student and, and still is a message that the people working for the Academy and the students studying at the Academy have very clear. That's so nice, Antonio. And indeed, of course, uh, when you study international humanitarian law and human rights uh, and you do it with the relevant and all attitude that you just mentioned to be passionate about, and then you combine the technicalities that you learn because one has to be also a good lawyer, you know, but without forgetting that law serves a purpose. I mean, then uh, we are so happy to have a great community of students and alumni such as you and others as well. And of course, it's a great you know, experience also as a teacher and as a teaching assistant, as have you been for the academy for many years, because we didn't mention that in addition to many other things, you've been working as a teaching assistant at the Geneva Academy, which was involving also to organize things, to organize events, and not only you know, to assist in classroom. No? To, to attend study trips, another fantastic thing. Did yeah. a couple of study trips. Did, which was the first one that you did? I did, I did uh, Bosnia. The trip was fantastic and very enriching and, and, and life-changing, I would say, in many respects. And then I also had Solferino, which was also... You had both. No? You had wonderful, both. Yes, yes. And the trip to Bosnia was, I still have the memory of visiting the tunnel no? in Sarajevo, which was really, really, really big, big, big experience. Yes, yes, yes. I went also to the Srebrenica Memorial and, and we went also to the to the compound where the peacekeepers uh, were stationed, the compound where some of the victims of Srebrenica had initially found refuge and then they they were, uh, some of them kicked out. It was very, very emotional, I have to say. Once again, a reminder of how bad human beings can be, and but also a reminder that we can do better and we should do better and we should strive to do better. And that we should help the victims, no? Also, and they're in their fight uh, for a better world. So I'm super touched. I think uh, I share everything with you, uh, Antonio. But in addition, I know at least for me, one of the best things that I will take with me from the academy is this podcast. So I will miss uh, really the the two of you, my co-hosts, but also our other part of the team. So Margarita, Natalie, and then Tatiana in the previous uh, season. And I really thank uh, to, to you, but also to our listeners who have been with us. I also wish to remind that, that they can listen to this episode, but also all the other episodes of this podcast uh, on usual uh, podcast platform. So Apple, Spotify, and so on. And uh, thank you for being such a great team. And thanks for being such a great audience. Ciao, ciao. Thank you. Thank you. And bye-bye. You've been listening to In and Around Wars, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with Geneva Academy alumni. You can also check the Geneva Academy's website at www.geneva-academy.ch to find more resources and upcoming events on contemporary issues of international humanitarian law and policy.